Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tough on podcasts. Tough on the causes of podcasts. Strike up the band. <laughs> If in doubt, say nout, but not for long. The other thing that Polly left out was otters. And nobody is giving votes to ghosts. Ghost dogs. Yes, here we are again. It's How to Win a Lecture with me, Matt Shirley, joined by Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie. And Peter Mandelson, if you want to get in touch, you can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, attach a voice note. Or if you want to WhatsApp us, make sure you put how to win in the uh, message so we can find it. 0333-003-2353. That's 0333-003-2353. We'll put all the details uh, in the description so we can find all of that. Right, how are we all? Yeah, I think I may have been wrong about votes for otters because they may need them to run in Rochdale. <laughs> <laughs> so we should explain, we've, we, I say we, Polly has gone viral. So uh, this is what happened on the podcast last week, before we get into votes for otters and ghost dogs. This is Polly making what she thought was a perfectly reasonable suggestion. I'm just going to say something that you probably will all think I'm joking, but I'm deadly serious, which is that I think people should get votes from birth. I think there is no good reason to disenfranchise the under-18s at all. And I, I would be happy for parents to hold that vote in proxy until their child is, say, 10. So that was your initial suggestion. We then talked about people who weren't yet born, people who were dead, animals, and then obviously ghost dogs. Uh, it's been seen now more than 350,000 times on what we used to call... Uh, Twitter. Is this the first time you've gone viral, Polly? Uh, oh, no, I've done worse things. Don't <laughs> Such as? Oh, well, there's a thing about plastic bags. But actually, I... I um, yeah, what, what is the thing about plastic bags? No, Why do... Because people, it's people, it's it's people who keep bringing up, they blame you personally for having to pay for a plastic bag. Like, that's a bad thing. Oh, no, they blame me for, I don't know, murdering benefit claimants or something. Oh, it's okay, it's quite complicated. Um, I, <laughs> just to be clear, because I was once in an election campaign accused of having stolen a council house. Wow. Um, and I have not stolen a council house. I have not murdered anybody, right. just in case there's any doubt. Right, so here's the thing about uh, being trolled on the internet uh, that I have had a few times. It is when a woman says something that people disagree with, is what you usually get is not, oh, I disagree with that, which is totally fine. 
I made what I admit is a radical and unusual suggestion. People are very welcome to disagree with me. But what's interesting about the comments is it's all, this is what's wrong with white Western women, or this is why women shouldn't have the vote. And women are so often in public life, you know, held up to a different sort of standard, where if, if Matt Chorley's wrong, it's because Matt Chorley's an idiot. But if Polly it's McKenzie's wrong... It's got a big wrong, fat face quite often, yeah, well, uh, or ears. It's but, called it's called misogyny. I know, it's called, it's called misogyny, and it really, really... <laughs> I think that's called man's playing. <laughs> but it's you're so right. So I, you know, I've obviously retweeted the all the videos of how to win. But if if I ever retweet uh, like a female journalist or columnist, and then people, you know, I then see people replying to it. It's extraordinary the difference. So if I tweet that Danny's done a great column, people might be you know, oh god, you know, he's wrong for this or the other reason. But the <coughs> instant misogyny to a woman saying something that someone disagrees with is. M- mad. Yeah, and, and it's that you have let down the entire half of the species by just ha- having a wrong opinion. And and that's just, well, it's profoundly wrong, but it also, it's it, it, it works to kind of drive women out of public life in a way that I think is it, genuinely harmful. Yeah, you know, so the interesting thing is, as you know, I didn't agree with your idea about um, babies voting, uh, but actually almost every baby would exercise the discretion in the franchise better than the people who responded <laughs> under your article. <laughs> I mean, it, it really did rather approve your point. I once went viral because I wrote an article about Winston Churchill in which I said that um, he was a great man, but he was undeniably racist. Um, I think that is tr- basically, uh, you know, the only possible defensible position. Um, this appeared in the Times as Winston Churchill was racist, but he was a great man, as opposed to Winston <laughs> Churchill was a great man, but he was racist. And this was then retweeted something like 17 million times, a lot, in oh. other words, as a, as a, um, as a, uh, a, a photoshopped headline. Um, and, I, I'm feeling really left out. How, how do I... How can I go viral? How can I go viral? I'm sure you have, Peter. Dancing? Could we get you dancing? Oh, jumpers. Yeah. Definitely. More jumpers. Yeah, more jumpers. Wearing all of your jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Polly, somebody, somebody, somebody actually tried to take your suggestion uh, seriously. Alex got in touch and emailed how to win at the times.co.uk. He said, while I agree with lowering the age vote, the age to uh, to vote to 16, I disagree with giving this right to younger children, especially allowing parents to vote on the behalf of their children. This would mean the larger the family is, the more votes they would get. This would jeopardise the rights of those people with fewer or no children and potentially result in disproportionate representation. Well, that's an entirely reasonable argument. I, I, I do disagree. Um because I think that that is a feature, not a bug in what I propose. Uh, it, nobody is a perfect representative of, you know, like, the future. Uh, but I think that that would help to um, increase the the chances of the needs of future generations being reflected in the decisions that we make as a society. That's all. It's yeah. imperfect. Everything's imperfect. Well, rather than Alex, for asking, making an interesting point without being... A sexist pig. Uh, we've had another email in, uh, because obviously since since we gathered last week, uh, there's quite a lot has happened in politics, uh, not least uh, the Labour Party discovering that um, they don't necessarily <coughs> know who's standing for them. So we had an email from Pat, said, Hi, loving the podcast and the theme tune, of course. Which might be sarcasm, Pat, but I'm going to ignore that. Uh, uh, Pat goes on, Selecting candidates can be problematic. How could parties improve the process to protect themselves from having the wrong candidates? Peter, late- I think in the main the Labour Party does. 
uh, do that. I mean, the exception proves the rule. The rule is, and I've met dozens of newly selected Labour candidates, and I'm really impressed by them. I mean, candidate for candidate, they're sort of, in the main, better than the ones, frankly, we selected in the 1990s before when New Labour was being created. So I'm I'm very happy uh, with the way in which candidates are selected uh, in the Labour Party, but sometimes something goes wrong. Yeah, can I, something can I just... went wrong in uh, Rochdale. I, I'm not quite on. Un- I don't quite understand really what happened in Rochdale because, uh, as our Ali, the Labour candidate who has now been sort of stood down as Labour, has a long history of being a friend of Israel, a Jewish ally, somebody who has campaigned uh, with Jewish organisations, and actually a lot of the representatives of these organisations spoke up for him mm. that weekend. And yet, something ghastly is going on in the country where somebody like him feels to go into a a, a private meeting uh, in Rochdale of people who are concerned about Gaza, feels he has to say these things and pander to this sort of sentiment in a way that he did, and as a result, he was rightly stood down as a candidate. But what is it about this sort of poisonous, fetid atmosphere that that is enveloping the country over this issue that people like him feel the need to say those, frankly, racist things? Yeah, I, 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 first of all, can I stick up for Sir Karl Popper and say that the exception doesn't prove the rule? Yeah. Uh, obviously, <laughs> that's the whole point of exceptions and rules. But, um, but um, so... Uh, <laughs> Sir Karl Popper... Sorry, he's, the philosopher. he's a philosopher who you Ought to studied at oh. university. Well, I didn't go to university, Peter. <laughs> I'll get you a copy. I now. did you know. do philosophy A level, but I might not have been paying attention. So, Brian, there's, there's a chance for a late entry. <laughs> Brian McGee's small book on Karl Popper is fantastic, and actually, knowing you well as I do, I think you'll get a lot out of it. It's very good. But um, I like that too. But obviously, <laughs> the, 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 the problem, Peter, Peter points the correct problem, which is you can take whatever robust uh, measures you like and you'll still um, end up with some candidate. I was involved in a candidate selection of a candidate in Watford, near where I live. I was asked to do the kind of interviews. And at at the end of this interview, I came to the conclusion that the candidate they'd selected, while um, solid, was very boring. And I felt this was, you know, it was a shame they chose the boring candidate, but at least he was safe, um, whereas the others, I thought, maybe were more of a punt. Um, anyway, about six months after he'd been selected, uh, news stories began to appear in the paper. The uh, the editor of the local newspaper had had a pot of paint thrown over his car. The Liberal, can- the Liberal Democrat candidate had had the word bitch um, painted over her garage door uh, by one of the, uh, apparently one of the people who'd... Uh, commented under Polly's uh, tweet Um, uh, and the police launched an investigation uh, into where this uh, harassment had come from only to discover that it was personally the Conservative candidate. It was the boring guy that done it. The boring guy had done it Uh, and he then had to stand by. That's how Richard Harrington, who became an excellent MP actually, entered Parliament. So uh, truthfully, you know, I I can see, you you can select people and I think actually you're right Peter Anza Ali was an example of that, who seem on the surface of it to be perfectly all right. And in any selection process, however robust, you can select poor people. But I would say this, in Wellingborough, the Conservative Party selected a candidate who, and if you look at the difference between the Wellingborough by-election and the Kingswood by-election, you can see how much bigger the Wellingborough swing was. 
whom voters on the doorstep, so I understand, said, you know, you've selected the partner of the disgraced former MP. What are you doing? And the Conservative Party did not, I think, exercise sufficiently strong um, uh, control over who its local candidates are. So parties, I think, go in and out of that willingness to control, depending on how hungry they are for power. And at the moment, I think Labour is simply hungrier in the, than, than the Tories and is therefore being more robust about the candidates it's selected. And it has to be because the moment it relaxes even for a second, it gets things like Rochdale wrong. It's a much tighter operation altogether. But there's two parts to this process, right? So the first is, what is the threshold for being an approved candidate at all? Uh, and then the question of how do you actually select the candidate from that approved list? And the parties are in this tension between wanting to have kind of local democracy, local selections within their local selectorates, but wanting to exercise control. The first mechanism of control is that approvals standard that has been used. Um, I used to sit on an approvals panel for uh, the Liberal Democrats, testing whether the candidates knew enough well, about Liberal Democrat they were policy. Boring enough? No, yeah, exactly <laughs> that, Peter. Did they know enough about Liberal Democrat policy? Uh, and and you can kind of raise that threshold, but it, that means you end up... Um, so there were the controversies, I think, when uh, Nick Timothy was struck off the approved candidates list for some reason that I can't quite remember. He didn't campaign when he was he a special advisor. Even yeah. though he was probably... He was the leader. guy who worked for Theresa May. He was. Um, but for me, actually, a big part of what's wrong with this process is the, the local selectorate problem. The kinds of people who join political parties are weirdos. <laughs> I mean, they just are. And, and particularly, you know, you then get sometimes very small groups of people, perhaps a hundred um, people who are the ones willing to give their evening up to turn up at an in-person selection interview process. And those people's ability to think effectively about what the voters in their area might want or need is often significantly impaired by just the fact that they're weirdos. And, and so you end up, with, instead of trying to deal with that structurally, the parties just try and kind of raise the floor of what the quality of yeah. candidates are, or do sneaky stuff and get in and, and strike people off lists and intervene. Actually, I think David Cameron was onto something when he proposed doing something much, much more radical, which was having open selections, so that it was all of the voters in any constituency who were allowed to vote for the Conservative Party candidate. Whether they were members of the party Whether they were members yeah, of the yeah. party or not, much more like an American process. In, the idea is that that should reduce radicalisation. It doesn't necessarily work always to do that. Well, actually, but they did it in Totnes in the last, in the run up to 2010, where they had a particular expenses issue. Uh, it was seen as working quite well, and they selected Sarah Wollaston, who was a former GP, wasn't really part of the party. But then as soon as she arrived in Westminster, she was basically a nightmare. Said she didn't want to tow the well, whip, but why was she being okay. told to do this? I don't think she was a nightmare. Well, she was so for the I, Tory party. Yes, she was for the Tory party, but that's a very different point. Um, and so, uh, obviously, if you have a... If you, the problem with the proposal is this. The executive um, rules through Parliament, and if you have a tremendous diversity of candidates and no party control, it's very difficult for the executive to govern under our system. Um, that's the, the, the downside of it. The upside of it is you do actually get more independent-minded people mm. um, who, in you know various cases, 
stretch the Conservative Party back towards, for example, the centre of its voters over the centre of its activists, um, which which is a good thing, and it and it would be a good thing with Labour as well. So I I, I do rather favour it, but it, I. I would acknowledge it has this problem, which is it then becomes quite difficult to whip. And if you can't whip, um, then it's very difficult to govern. But what happens if you had this system and, you know, conservative selections were inundated by organised armies of sort of UKIP, Reform UK, supporting people who just pour into the selection meeting, choose their back the, their favoured candidate, and they do this, you know, in different parts of the country. And before you know where you are, you know, the what? complexion of the Conservative Party is You get Jeremy changed. Corbyn as leader. And, yeah, yeah. Or you get the yeah. Tory equivalent of Corbynism, which but is it, sort of where we're heading in the Conservative Party. I just want to play you something, Peter. I've just done this out because we're um, talking about, you know, needing to do candidate selection uh, and, and what happened in 97. I spoke to Margaret MacDonald, who was the General Secretary, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in the run-up to 1997. And she explained what happened uh, when so many people got elected not expecting it. We had candidates on the end of the phone saying, I didn't expect to get elected, (laughs) or how am I going to tell my wife? (laughs) Or, do you know what I mean? It was sort of, it changed, absolutely changed people's lives. On the morning of the election the day after polling day i was dispatched from the royal festival hall where we were celebrating this at six o'clock in the morning blair dispatched me back to millbank uh in order to take a meeting to look at the people who had been elected wow and there was a group of uh, half a dozen officials including the, the very famous margaret mcdonough uh, and we had to go through this list and try and identify who these people were, which way they lent, whether they are going to be sort of good, solid, loyal, Blair-supporting new Labourites. Uh, in the main, they were, uh, actually, much to their and our surprise. Um, but uh, the, it, was a quite, it was a very serious so does, question. It, it I mean, Blair like, was quite concerned about it. Six so, o'clock in the morning, we had that meeting. Yeah, so it does at least look like Star was doing some of those checks. Uh, now, uh, we should just give you the list of the all of the candidates in the Rochdale by-election. Uh, Azar Ali is the Labour candidate, even though he's been disowned by the Labour Party. Mark Coleman uh, is the Independent. Simon Danchuk for Reform UK. Ian Donaldson for the Liberal Democrats. Paul Ellison for the Conservatives. George Galloway for the Workers' Party of Britain. Michael Howarth is an Independent. William Howarth is an Independent. Guy Otten for the Green Party. Raven Rodent Subortner for the official Monster Raving Looney Party. And David Tully is also an independent. So that's your full list of candidates in Rochdale. In a moment, we'll ask how to win in a recession, but this is how to win an election. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yes, how to win an election with me, Matt Chorley. Joined by our political masterminds, Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. So, I wanted to ask, how can you win in a recession? Uh, the latest economic figures show that Britain fell into a recession in the second half of 2020. And lots of people kept saying it was a technical recession as opposed to a vibes-based uh, recession. A stagnation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Danny, we know there's a long list of things which you think don't matter... Does being in a recession in an yeah, election year yeah, matter? Absolutely. Uh, it's the Yay, primary thing. We found it. <laughs> long so, last, Danny has no, no, identified no. something that will make a difference yeah, to help people vote. So, um, <laughs> so you know, in a very, very good book called Why Message Matters by Lynn Vavrek, the political scientist, she uh, essentially shows the strong relationship in US elections, this is, but I think the same occurs here, uh, between uh, economic performance in the last six to nine months before an election and expected performance in the in the three to six months after the election in terms of people's uh, well welfare, uh, their, their, their disposable income, and that, that the relationship of that to voting. And then she asked the question, can you actually buck that? You know, if, you, if you're the candidate uh, that is running for the opposition party and the economy is going very well or you're uh, the party that is running with the, um, the in the government and the economy is not going very well are you doomed and she argues no you're not completely doomed um, but it's very difficult that's the first point um, but then she says can you do anything about it yes you can select an issue which you are able to campaign on but your opposition uh, the, the other party cannot and you can try to elevate that into the issue for the election. And, and actually, interestingly, before the 2015 election, I, I remember that um, Rishi, that Ed Miliband, to be fair to him, as we say, um, <laughs> had raised the issue of, of um, Lord Fink, a member of the House of Lords, and his tax affairs. And it was regarded as, you know, a successful hit on the Tories. And I wrote a column saying, I think he's going to lose the election. And the reason I thought that is because I thought that the economy was going to go against Labour and I thought this demonstrated he didn't have a satisfactory alternative issue. Um, and uh, and indeed, that you know, whether or not my analysis was correct, obviously that did prove to be the case. So the issue for the, big, for, for the Conservative Party, because I think they're going to be the government in, in power and the economy is not going to be going strongly enough in their direction, is what is your alternative issue? And I see why they've then investigated the question of leaving the European Convention of Human Rights and, and going into a campaign on woke. I don't think that would work. I think it would split the Conservative Party and it wouldn't interest enough voters. 
but it is strategically a response to going into an election, mm. even if not the correct response. But maybe Peter or Polly has an alternative. Well, I mean, it, it's perhaps what they're doing is trying to just dump the economy as an issue, as an election issue. Uh, I think it's extremely hard to do that for all the reasons that Danny uh, has explained. But that's what perhaps why they are turning to small boats, Rwanda, immigration. But the problem with them for immigration is that they are stoking up a great deal of sentiment and anger amongst conservative supporters as well as some others, but many, many conservative supporters uh, who, angry and disappointed at the government's performance over immigration, are now turning to Reform UK. So what we've seen over the last few months as, as, we've, as they've banged the drum over immigration uh, without providing solutions uh, to it, is that support for Reform UK has grown. And that's what we saw in uh, Wellingborough. And I think we'll see it in others. And the, the, the Reform UK, from a Conservative point of view, are in danger of taking off if Farage mm. uh, joins their campaign. If he hits, hits the campaign trail <coughs> between now and the election, he will put booster rockets under Reform UK. And then I think the Conservatives will, will indeed be well and truly... Uh, sunk. So I don't think going on about immigration and boats and whatever is the answer to their problem. But he's only got so many things he could keep talking about. Polly, I was going. I, I thought well, I'd look at the polling on this just to see how badly uh, they're doing. Actually, it, in terms of the, how the public think the government's handling the economy, I mean, it, it's low. But the number of people saying they're handling it well is going up. The number of people saying it's ha- uh, handling it badly is coming down. And if you look at which government do you would be better at managing the economy. The Conservatives are on 20, under Rishi Sunak are on 24%. Labour on 27 neither on 28 The Labour and the Conservatives are basically neck and neck on this. It's not like Labour are, are winning on the economy either. It doesn't feel like. But maybe that doesn't matter if you're not the government. They're not massively ahead, but they are slightly ahead. Um, and crucially, they're ahead on everything else. And if the Labour Party is ahead on the economy... The Labour Party sort of takes for granted that it's ahead on whether they do public services well. Mm. And they're also ahead on uh, immigration in, in, by some measures. And again, partly because of the reason that Peter was just explaining, that the more the Conservatives talk up how tough they are on immigration whilst continuing to fail, the more they actually kind of push votes away from themselves. And and they push up the salience without dealing with their competence problem and actually they, they, they get worse ratings on that. So they're just there isn't... Another issue, as Danny suggests, that the Conservative Party can 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 actually pick on that works for the centre. It's that you know, it's like in chess, right? You're in check, and so you have to you have to move. Um, but the problem is that every move actually puts them into a worse situation uh, because they're trying to move to the right to pick up the anti woke vote to stop reform taking them, but. All they're doing is making the problem worse. So I, I think the only thing that they can do is hope the economy comes right and tries to do what they can to engineer that it does at the right time. I, I, I think it's a very long shot um, because, you know, the, the basis of analysis is they're not going to win the election, but it's a very long shot. But you look at those figures and you can see Labour hasn't got an alternative issue, uh, really. I mean, Tony Blair did have a kind of strong... 
uh, time for a change offering. And I don't think Keir Starmer quite does that. At the moment, he's dependent upon the fact that people are turning away from the Conservatives. And I think they are, and very strongly. And therefore, you know, I've never joined in this, you know, the problem with Keir Starmer thing, because it's ridiculous, given how well the, the party is doing in the polls. But if you were looking for a Conservative strategy, I think you would hope and try to engineer that the economy comes right because you haven't got an alternative issue and you are probably not that far away on the economy. So therefore, insofar as there's a small glimmer and we're looking here for strategies given the overall analysis, that's what I'd do. If I was advising the Labour Party, I would accept that the economy is the baseline. Uh, you can't ignore it. You've got so much to demonstrate. You, your credentials are so important. How you persuade people that you're going to be really disciplined and responsible when it comes to the public finances and that you've really got a serious growth strategy that will enable uh, us to turn a corner. But I would advise Labour Part, the Labour Party to, do, to campaign on two other issues. One would be the National Health Service and the other would be crime. Uh, I think in both these areas, uh, the Conservatives have a poor record, uh, one more obvious than the other, the health service, but I think on crime we hear and see too little of what the Labour Party has to say uh, about crime and I think it's a much more important issue for voters than they appear currently to acknowledge. Is that, an, is that a, a Keir Starmer problem or a Vet Cooper problem? Um, it's an opportunity, not a problem, Matt, uh, for, <laughs> for both of them. Um, but it's something where Yvette Cooper, the Shadow Home Secretary, uh, has got to take uh, the lead. I mean, I think that on the economy, you've got in Rachel Reeve somebody who's basically established her credibility. She's got her credentials intact. Uh, her, you know, moving on of the 28 billion was a signal uh, 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 development uh, for her and showed, I think, her authority uh, in this uh, uh, area. Um, I think that how the Labour Party responds to the budget will be of some importance, but I don't think it's game-changing from the Conservative point of view. I think the problem for the Conservatives over the economy is that given the state of recession, stagnation, call it what you wish, and this is not going to be transformed, by the way, any time between now and the election, it makes it much harder for the Conservatives to defeat the argument that it's time for uh, a change. And secondly, I think it makes tax cuts in the forthcoming budget problematic for them. I think, you know, when we're rewarding ourselves with tax cuts, when the economy is still in recession, looks uh, weird. I think at the best, uh, it's it sort of, you know, uh, um, premature. At worst, it's irresponsible. So I would be surprised that they get much politically out of a modest tax cutting budget uh, in March. But this places the onus on Labour, because what the Tories are going to say, well, if you think it's bad under us, oh, my God, you know, wait until you see what will happen to the economy under this other uh, lot. I mean, which brings us back to the almost the very first discussion we had on this podcast, which is at the end of the day, the Conservatives will campaign on better the devil you know. That's well, that is a cry of desperation <laughs> on the part of the Conservatives. But the point is it it puts the onus on Labour uh, to establish their credibility. They've got to be absolutely foursquare behind Rachel Reeves and the positions that she's taking uh, so that we don't have a repeat of that other recession election, which was 19... 19- 
92, when suddenly and surprisingly for some, not for all of us, uh, the Conservatives were able to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. But in the run-up to that, when it was in spring, the spring of 91, Norman Lamont talked about the green shoots and lots of people uh, well, criticised him for it, attacked him yeah. the green shoots. I remember in the run-up to 2010, I was away for the West Morning News, coming to briefings with ministers, you were one of them, where we spent that whole... Sessions trying to get you to say the phrase green shoots. Can you see green shoots, Minister? Is the green shoots? The green shoots? <laughs> and the, some, some of your colleagues were slightly better at avoiding that than others. Well, I had one minister who didn't avoid it, and she, she still talks about it and is sort of licking her wounds even it? today. Wonderful, wonderful minister um, uh, who's now uh, really successful in the business world, and that's Sriti Vadira. I think that was why we played the game. <laughs> <laughs> The question is whether if there are green shoots, whether we call them that or not, before the election, whether that actually helps the Conservatives enough. And, you know, what's interesting about 97 is actually the economy was by then doing really quite well. Um, And yet, nevertheless, the Conservatives had lost their economic credibility because of the recession and uh, Black Wednesday and the period that we'd kind of gone through in the mid-90s. And uh, for me, it feels like because we have had such terrible kind of experiences in terms of people's living standards, which are worse than the kind of headline recession figures say. I I think that even if there were green shoots, it it would feel that the Conservatives' economic credibility is still so fundamentally wounded. And, And you'd still have what we had in 97, which is the combination of moribund public services... Uh, and a kind of generalised sense of scandal and corruption. And when you've got all three of those together, uh, loss of economic credibility, underfunded public service, it's absolutely terrible. It is, look, uh, the thing is is that the Conservative Party obviously has to have a strategy. Um, So so I I think... They're really trying not to. No, I think think if you... Well, the reason for that is, is obvious, which is that when you alight on a strategy you can immediately see what the flaws in it are. So, for example, when Rishi Sunak decided he was going to go for this we are the change strategy, the reason for that was was obvious, which is that if you don't represent change, you're going to be swept away by change. Um, But on the other hand, the argument against doing it was it looked ridiculous, and so they had to abandon it. So... What we're trying to investigate here is what would be the optimal strategy in the circumstances that all strategies are not likely to be good. My view is that with the economy, it's the peak and the end that matters. It's what the the social psychologists call the peak end rule. And the problem for the Conservatives is the peak experience was probably Liz Truss's premiership, where people felt the Conservative Party was to blame for, uh, directly because of economic policies it pursued, whether or not, you know, somebody in the IEA could argue that it isn't, that's how people experienced it, was directly responsible for people's mortgages going up and they felt that they were directly punished by the Conservative Party's Mm -hmm. policy. And so I think even if you get a mild uptick at the end, and you can reassure Sriti Vadira, it's not about whether they said I wasn't even aware that she'd said that. And well, she didn't it, actually say it, that. It, it, exactly. it, but it, that's the well. I didn't even get the impression. That I didn't. That's get, the interpretation. I forgot entirely. She did that because because that doesn't matter in the that you can bing again doesn't matter in the slightest. <laughs> what matters is whether or not people experience that there's been a green shoot, not whether a politician yeah. does or doesn't say it. I, so you were wasting your time, Matt. Is what I'm saying. Trying to get them to. She say did it. say, "I am seeing a few green shoots," but it's a little too early to say exactly how they'd grow. 
doesn't sound like she did say that, Peter. Well, very, 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 <laughs> very circumspect. Very uh, circumspect. Look, what I, don't, what, I, what I don't want to see, what I don't want to see are echoes of Labour's 1992 campaign creeping into uh, the campaign now. Um, in 1992, you had a savaging of Neil Kinnock and his leadership by the Tory-supporting newspapers. You had a terrible sort of mess up by John Smith over tax and spending in his shadow budget. You then had in the sort of final 10 days of the campaign, the Labour Party suddenly went on a journey and decided that constitutional and electoral reform was suddenly an issue, uh, (laughs) which which would motivate the voters to turn out uh, to support uh, uh, Labour. And the voters were just left sort of confused uh, by this. Mm. And then in the midst of all this, actually, the Labour Party campaign, I was actually in Hartlepool fighting it, I wasn't in London, but it just became rather bifurcated. I mean, it ended up with nobody really in charge. You had sort of two, a dual-track campaign being sort of spearheaded by different people uh, and the result was confusion. If you want to win, you have to have absolute strategic purpose, clarity and discipline. Otherwise, you're lost. <laughs> Very good. We managed to get through all that and nobody's mentioned Citizens' Assemblies, which is a child. Uh, right, we'll do some well, of your... Citizens' Assemblies. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they've got a lot to be said for Citizens' Assembly, but is that really the voters' priority? Well, according in to election, Sue is. I- election year or... Ooh. Or the Labour announcement that we're suddenly going to reopen the issue of fox hunting, not to scrap the ban, but to tighten it up and to relitigate the whole issue. I mean, these are third or fourth order issues for the public. They've got to remain focused on their strategy and on the key issues which are important to voters. Right, enough questions from me. Uh, Let's have a question from a listener. This is Tim, who says he's a Brexit refugee living in Italy. I was in Millbank Tower in the last week of the 1997 campaign when Peter Mandelson gathered all the staff and said, if we win on Thursday, it will in part be due to the foundations laid by this man. He then introduced Neil Kinnock to speak. For the many seasoned campaigners present, it was an extremely moving moment. What have been the presenters' most emotional experiences in an election campaign? Good question from Tim. I suppose, as it was mentioned you, Peter, what's been your most emotional experience in a campaign? Well, just one point about Neil Kinnock. If Neil Kinnock hadn't saved the Labour Party in the 1980s, there'd have been nothing there for Tony Blair to modernise in the 1990s. That is the hero. That is the heroism of Neil Kinnock. Now, obviously, the most emotional time for me was when, against the odds, when everyone told me I had to stand down and not fight again in Hartlepool and said the voters would rebel and they wouldn't back me and all the press descended and sort of scoured my town for people to say nasty things about me. Um, On election night, I sort of smashed it. And that was a very, very emotional time. When I say this was, I sma- this when was I say, the this was the fight and not a quitter. When I say I smashed it, I mean I did speak. I, I became a little shouty about it. <laughs> but the reason I became shouty was because Arthur Scargill uh, uh, and his supporters, Arthur, who had stood against me in this uh, election, you know, to give people the chance of Hartlepool to vote for real socialism uh, as opposed to my version of it, they were sort of barracking me in the in the front. And so I sort of didn't realise that, of course, nobody could pick up what they were saying and doing. So I sort of started shouting into the microphone. But anyway, I was very emotional. Yeah. 
And it was a huge relief, and I'm glad to say that no sooner had the result been uh, announced than Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell phoned me from their car and said, well done, it's a tremendous result, we knew you were going to smash it. And I said, well, mm, thank you very much, Tony, thank you, Alistair. Um, but it was nice of them to take the trouble. Polly, when did you, did you get emotional? Oh, I, I cry all the time. But um, it's always the results, I think, because that's that's the crystallisation of all of this tension and hard work and exhaustion, and then suddenly you know whether it worked or, or it mm. didn't work. Um, I mean, after 2015, um, obviously the Liberal Democrats had lost uh, almost all of our seats, um, and a, a large number of staff went to uh, the headquarters, uh, and, and Paddy Ashdown stood on a table and he said... Um, uh, why would anybody do what's right in the, the, the national interest again in politics? And that was quite <laughs> heartbreaking. We then sort of traipsed up to the MAL, I think the ICA, Institute for Competition, somewhere like that, where Nick Clegg gave his resignation speech. And uh, and having seen, uh, having seen Ed Miliband's sort of, oh, oops, I lost speech, uh, I think the contrast between the two of them was extraordinary. Uh, Ed Miliband just sort of made a joke about Miller fans and hadn't it all been a laugh? The real fun is the friends we made along the way kind of stuff. And, and for Nick, it was, you know, it was, it was absolutely devastating. Yeah, I thought I... <clears throat> the election night when I ran in, uh, in, in Harrow West and didn't win just being able to thank the people who'd campaigned for me and actually congratulate the people who'd campaigned for Labour because I felt winning a seat in Parliament, which Gareth Thomas had done, you know, was, was is an amazing thing. Uh, so that was emotional because I think it's a sort of celebration mm. of democracy uh, election night and, um, you know, I felt that was emotional. Lovely. Not a nice note, note, note to end on, uh, rather than talking about citizens' assemblies. Uh, lovely to see you all. Uh, Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, Daniel Finkelstein. Who's going to go viral this week? We just don't know. Uh, you can obviously follow us on uh, uh, at Times Radio. Don't we and... have to say something really extreme yeah. to go viral? Yeah. Okay, is between now and next week. I'm yeah, could try and come up with something. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on that. You can email us, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk. Send your questions. Uh, we'll be back same time next week. <laughs>